0: Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of
1: Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, the Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Welcome to the Elite Advisor Blueprint, the podcast for world-class financial advisors. I'm Brad Johnson, VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, and it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. On today's podcast, I'm talking with Chris McChesney. Chris is the Global Practice Leader of Execution for Franklin Covey where he serves as one of the primary developers of the four disciplines of execution. It's a book, New York Times bestseller, as well as a framework for accomplishing strategic business goals and creating lasting organizational change. Chris has led many of the most noted implementations of 40X, including Marriott International, Shaw Industries, Ritz-Carlton, Kroger, Coca-Cola, Comcast, Frito-Lay, Lockheed Martin, and Gaylord Entertainment, to name just a few. And I first came across his work through Michael Hyatt, who called the four disciplines of execution his gold standard for his team. And it's one that we've implemented as well on our team over the last handful of years. Today, I'm honored to have Chris on the podcast to talk about how to simplify what's really tough for a lot of financial advisors to execute on, and the tools and techniques you can use to inspire your team to help them not only meet your goals, but their own as well. In today's episode, you'll learn three things. Number one, How to apply the four disciplines of execution, focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability to your business in order to achieve your most important goals and how to make time for the work you've been putting off for months, weeks, years, or sometimes even decades. Number two, the story of how Chris helped a major hotel cut luggage delivery time from 112 minutes all the way down to 20 minutes in order to boost customer satisfaction and how much these same principles apply to financial services and your practice. Number three, how to motivate your team to break decades of bad habits, make people feel like they really matter, and hold them accountable without feeling like the micromanaging boss you never wanted to become. Okay, before we get to today's conversation, Chris and his team were super generous, sent me a box of autographed copies of his book, The Four Disciplines of Execution, which has all of the details to execute on everything we discussed today and I'll be mailing them out until they're all gone. So here's what to do next if you'd like your free copy. Number one, all that I ask is that you leave an honest review out on iTunes for our show. To make it easy, there's a graphic right at the top of the show notes, bradleyjohnson.com forward slash three, just tap on it, it'll take you right where you need to go. Or if you happen to be listening on a mobile player, just simply tap on the episode, scroll down into the description, there should be a link right there. Number two, once you've left a review, just drop us an email via brad at bradleyjohnson.com with your iTunes username and a mailing address, and we will drop you a copy in the mail as a thank you. That simple. Also, quick apology to our international listeners outside of the US who've been kind enough to leave reviews. We appreciate you, but due to crazy high shipping prices, we can only ship these domestically. So please support Chris and just go grab a copy of 40X at your local bookstore or out on Amazon. So that's it. As always, thanks for listening in. And without further delay, my conversation with Chris McChesney. Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast. I have Chris McChesney here with us today. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Brad. Great to be here. So your official title... Global Practice Leader of Execution for Franklin Covey. Did I get that right? Yep. Cool. And it's fun how this conversation came to be. The first time that you were ever put on my radar, Mr. Michael Hyatt, who I was in a mastermind group with, handed me your book, The Four Disciplines of Execution. And at the time, we were growing our team internally. And it was just, you know, as you know, anytime you have a growing team, it's tough to execute. And coming from a guy like Michael, who devours all kinds of content. He's in multiple mastermind groups. And he basically said, this is the gold standard for our team. And so when I have a guy like that, that I respect at that level, I'm like, I better read this book quickly. And I did. And it was gold. And what I loved about it was the fact that you really simplified what is really, really tough for a lot of teams and companies and businesses to execute on, which is how do you actually inspire a team, and lead them all in the same direction to hit a goal. So to say that I'm excited for this conversation is an understatement. So thanks for joining today. And I think we did like a 30-minute podcast before we actually started recording the actual <laughs> podcast. So. I know. Right. That's a that's a
2: very kind introduction. I really appreciate that. And, and Michael Hyatt is an amazing executive coach. So that's, that's a high
1: honor for sure. Well, let's dive right in. So as we were kind of talking a little bit on your background, you have a fun story of how you actually got into Franklin Covey. Do you mind just kind of opening and sharing how that came to be? And then we'll dive into the four disciplines. Back to right. You.
2: We'll get the embarrassing stuff out of the way first. Perfect. Yeah. So it's so funny. I tell the story and everybody reminds me that there's an episode of Seinfeld with the exact same plot line where Kramer starts going to work for a company he doesn't actually work for. And, uh, the only difference is they fire him at the end and they kept me at Franklin Covey, but they, they wouldn't interview. It was the Covey Leadership Center. And I was, a, I was a college kid and I was obsessed with Stephen Covey's seven habits. And I, more than anything, I wanted to work for him and they wouldn't interview like anyone, let alone me. And uh, so I, I sort of pretended to work for a newspaper. I said, I'm writing, which was true. I said, I'm writing an article for the local paper on up and coming companies and asked if I could interview Stephen Covey. And uh, so in that process, and the newspaper was nice enough to, to publish the little story I had written. And uh, then I told them that I needed an internship, which also might have not been true. So long story short, four months in, I've been coming to work every single day. I ended up as Stephen Covey's publicist while being an unpaid intern at the Covey Leadership Center. One day, they figured it out. and They said, kid, you can't do this. There are laws. Uh. <laughs> you, don't, you don't actually have a job here we know there's no internship. What are you doing? And they, I think out of guilt, they said, we'll, we'll give you $6 an hour. They didn't have the heart to tell me to go home. So yeah, that's that's my very illustrious beginnings, uh, 29 years
0: ago.
1: Wow. And, and how old were you when you just took this leap of faith? 23. 23. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so then there's a fun story too. So you were actually the publicist at Franklin Covey when Covey's 7 Habits actually hit the number one bestseller? Was that the? Yeah, case? again,
2: completely by accident. And This was during the controversial intern period because they had let go of their publicist one week, mm-hmm. and they were looking for a new one. Right when Seven Habits hits number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and there's literally no one to do the amount of work they had. And they said, "Well, what about him?" He said, "He's from New York. Let him call New York." So I'm on the phone with Good Morning America. Right. I'm calling all these news outlets and I don't even really work for them. So I got to travel with Stephen Covey and, uh, it was just a, it was just a, one of those right place, right time
1: kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was just a weird, wow. it was just a weird wrinkle in the universe. You must've seen something in you because obviously you were a go-getter at that young age. What was it like to be in Stephen Covey's presence? What was that like as a 23 year old as your first kind of entering that world? That is an, aw- I don't think anyone's, Ever asked me that question before. You know,
2: I think the thing I was most surprised with was how real a person. You know, we think of these people, someone like like a Dr. Covey, that's now one of the most influential people of the century, you know, mm-hmm. and has written the best-selling business book of all time. And we put them on this pedestal and just how human they are and, and how how much they're like he was a goofball. Um, I have these crazy stories of things that he did that I don't even tell people because they wouldn't believe me. Uh, great relationship with his kids um, he was funny. He had these weird quirks i 'd bring him a set of questions for an interview, and he would never look at the questions. He said, "No, I want to be spontaneous you know I mean, like stuff like that I had huge broadcasts he didn 't want to see the questions ahead of time. He wanted to be authentic mm. and deeply spiritual person at the same time and really, really humble about that these were not his principles that that the, there are God-given laws in the universe, and if you can understand them and their consequences, you can live a much better life. And so, yeah, just just adored the man.
1: So, thanks for the question, Brad. Yeah. Do you, Do you have any one untold story you want to share with the audience here? Oh, yeah. About okay. So I'll go with I'll
2: on the Stephen Covey thing. Okay. Like, this is and this will probably this will probably kill our audience and and all and any credibility, but it's so wild. I now that you've asked, I gotta say it. He would talk all about how much time you should spend with your children and being balanced. And then he was a workaholic at the same time. Well, one of his kids, David, who's a dear friend of mine to this day, decided to take his father on. And while his dad was on a call, he got out a jar of peanut butter. And Dr. Covey has this famous bald head. And his dad was trying to ignore him. And he started spreading peanut butter on his father's head. And it got worse. Then he went and got the jelly. And then he slapped a piece of bread on his... dad's head and so it's this hilarious story but they they've acted they actually it was was this great inside joke about making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on your dad's head and uh anyways and i guess the funniest part of it was like he never acknowledged that this was going on like never broke (laughs) never broke stride the entire time and so i just i just love laying that visual over you know, a man that, that talked about some of the most important, you know, life-changing principles. It just, I just think it's a great
1: uh, trust. We're all just human beings when it's all said and done. We're, we're parents where our kids act up, they throw food at the dinner table. It's, you know, it's, yep. it's funny how that works.
2: Yep. Yep. Cool. Yep. And I, just a guy
1: that, a guy that just didn't take himself that seriously, but took
2: his mission very, very seriously, dedicated his life to one idea of restoring the character ethic. In the United States and, and really spread, spread around the world. I mean, he has incredible status to this day in countries all over the world and, be, and found out that these principles, they're not American, they're not US, they're, they're in every
1: culture. And so well, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's a testament to building a business that outlasts you, right? He left a legacy behind in the business that he built. And was very, and- that's a great statement, was very deliberate about that,
2: Brad. And really built this organization along with the book and really wanted, yeah, to be a change agent and to create something that was intergenerational. Yeah, that
1: was a very deliberate thing. Well, with that in mind, that's a good transition to the four disciplines of execution. And as you start to think through our audience, a bunch of independent financial advisors all across the US, I think that's one thing where I start to see a little bit of a hurdle that oftentimes is tough to overcome because most people that get into our business they're like the one, two, five percent that didn't wash out, right? Where a hundred people came into their sales organization when they were that 23 year old kid that stuck around and worked and grinded and came out the other end and were actually successful. But the hard part is that was all based on them. And now, how do you start to translate that to a team and a business, especially if you want a business that's going to outlast you and leave a legacy behind? So, I'm going to queue up 40x. I'm going to let you just kind of what is four disciplines of execution. If you don't mind, kind of laying out the thirty thousand foot view, and then nope. we'll just dive in wherever that takes us. Okay, perfect. And I
2: want to play off of what you just said. The fact that you're you're dealing with an audience that we're talking to an audience right now of people who are the five percent means that these principles will not be uncommon. And maybe the terminology might be new with a way to frame them, but a lot of what we are talking about might be what we sometimes call subconscious competencies. These are things that your listeners do intuitively on their own very, very well, but might struggle to educate their team members on because it's a subconscious, something they're doing. They don't even know. They they don't even think to articulate. It's, It's sort of inherent in them. And a lot of great operators, a lot of high achievers in sales organizations, the trickiest part of replicating that is understanding that so much of it's subconscious competence. It's why great players don't always make great coaches. Yeah. You can't always. And so before diving into the disciplines, and we'll hit those very quickly, let me start with the one dynamic that seems to be at the heart of this whole thing and resonates with everyone. It's this tension between things that are urgent and things that are very important, but don't have inherent urgency in them. In other words, they're critical activities that will not act on you. And truthfully, you could do those this afternoon instead of this morning. And you could do those tomorrow instead of today. And no one's going to get in trouble. There is no immediate accountability for certain activities. And in the moment, right, so that's the first problem. Mm-hmm. You're logically sound in saying, I could do those this afternoon. I could do those tomorrow. And, and tomorrow can never come. And then you compile that with the fact that there's this human tendency to always move to urgent activities. Even if you're on the most important project of the year, you'll catch yourself going, what am I doing? Why did I answer that text message? Yeah. Why did I pick up that phone? It, it can't be four o'clock already. All right. That little tendency, that move to urgency, let's call it, doesn't seem like a huge challenge because we can override the tendency. So we think. The problem is that anything that you're trying to do, that's strategic, you have to get through that wall. That that includes your team, that includes your own behavior. You're, you're never not fighting this tension, and we call the urgency. We call the whirlwind, and it, it represents everything that you have to do just to maintain your operation today, right? Just to get back to the clients, just to right all the things that are going to bite you right now if you don't do them. And people can stay 100% consumed and busy on those items and never get to the most strategic components that actually make you successful. And that one dynamic shows up in every line of business, everywhere. Can we put energy against strategic, non-urgent activities? And it is like developing a muscle. And all four disciplines go right at that problem. So before... Brad, any follow-up questions or added clarification you want to add on that point before we dive into the four disciplines? Because that's the why these disciplines exist.
1: It's what it reminds me of, Chris, is those days that we've all had where you go home and your spouse was like, how was today? And you're like, busy. And then you look back and you're like, I don't know that I actually got anything that mattered done. And that's that whirlwind. And that's what really hit home with me when I read your book. I was like, "Yeah, that's." that's why this stuff works is you're focusing on the stuff that actually matters. So yeah, let's, let's dive in. Let's, okay, let me go. I I know I'm I'm driving you crazy. Let me go. One more point on this is because
2: you got to get to the human, you got to get to how this feels. There's a great irony in acting on the urgent in the moment. It feels good to act on the urgent and it feels bad to act on the non-urgent. Matter of fact, you have to convince yourself that you're not wasting time. When you have to convince yourself you're not wasting time, when you're actually working on the most important thing you could be doing, but we're so addicted to urgency that it doesn't feel important. Have you ever had to? Have you ever had to talk yourself into something, into putting energy into something that should be inherently obvious? This is where you need to be spending your time, but you're feeling this weird withdrawal symptom from urgency. So in the moment, here's the point: in the moment, the urgent stuff feels good all day long. It's like an itch you're scratching. Yep. Until the end of the day, when you're talking to your spouse or your kid and they have no idea what you're talking about, when you say, I killed myself all day, I'm not sure I got anything done like that sick feeling at the end. And there's a great quote. I think it's Jim Rohn. He's a motivational speaker, but he has this great quote. He says that the uh, the pain of discipline is better than the pain of regret. And so there is just a little bit of pain associated with all four of these disciplines and it, it's far better than the pain of regret when you've been busy all day and you haven't got anything done.
1: Okay. So, and, and I have a hunch, I'm going to let you confirm this because you've been doing the 40X work for how long now? 17 years. 17 years. So, very, very pre iPhone, pre smartphone. Oh, I know. I'm going to guess the whirlwind in your work with all of these different no companies. Question pre-smartphone, pre-iPhone whirlwind to post-smartphone whirlwind. How much worse has it gotten? Well, the, I, here's, here's the thing. This is not from us. This is everybody we talked to.
2: 15 years ago, 17 years ago, people didn't think it could get any worse. Mm. Like We were just warming up. This is a personal whirlwind device right here. The mm-hmm. ability to be distracted has gotten so intense and people's attention spans have gotten so small that, yeah, if this problem was an issue 15, 17 years ago, yeah, you know, it's so much worse than that today. So you're right. We're at a whole new level of urgency addiction that we didn't even think was possible.
1: Yeah. We were standing in line as a family the other day at Chipotle and my son's like, I'm bored. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, it's gotten so bad that we can't stand in line for five minutes without some sort of stimulus I'm, in our society. I'm
2: feeding you, right? You don't even, you're not even making the food. I know. Yeah. Boys, okay. it's,
1: it's, bad. It's, it's epidemic. That's right. It's but, All right. So let's dive in. They're like, right. what the heck are the four disciplines? So let's, let's get those. Okay. So fastest overview ever, right? Okay. I mean, just
2: stay at a principal level. Mm-hmm. This is how I think about it. Think about flying an airplane. There's four rules. There's lift, thrust, weight, and drag. You botch one of those rules, the plane comes down. Same idea. Only it's not lift, thrust, weight, and drag. It's focus, it's leverage, it's engagement, and it's accountability. Focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability. And they are as unforgiving to execution as lift, thrust, weight, and drag are to flight. You focus, leverage, engagement, engagement, and accountability. And they they play off of one another. You know, lift, thrust, weight, and drag are not independent ideas to an airframe, right? They're all acting simultaneously. And this is, this seems to be, this metaphor is really stood the test of time. This really seems to be a great way to think about focus, leverage, engagement, accountability. And focus is really getting clear on what's whirlwind, what's life support, and what's the critical game changer in my operation. And if those two things get mixed together, you spin and urgency takes over. You've got to create delineation between what is the one thing. And it's not your highest level objective. It's not, you know, it's not total assets right under, uh, uh what's the term that's, that's used in, in
1: financial, right, right? Yeah. So here, I'll, yeah, I'll give you a real world example. So number one, focus, focus on the wildly important goal. So I've done goal setting now with our clients for the last 12 years, Right, where it always goes to, which will take us probably into point number two here in a bit. Mm -hmm. It always goes to, okay, I did 5 million of new assets last year, now I wanna do 10 million this year, or my revenue was 500,000 as a firm last year, now I wanna get to a million. That's right. Always focused on the big number, typically assets or revenue of the firm. Right. And what I want to do is I want
2: to create in in the minds of everyone that's listening two different types of objectives. Okay. That it is totally fine to have an objective to go from 5 million to 10 million. That's fine. But that is not an executable goal. If the goal and what we term, I'm going to introduce a term just because we have to have one a term we call a wig or a wildly important goal. And it's not the most perfect term, but it's the one we chose and we've stayed with it. But here's what this means. This, the wildly important goal is the goal that is a subcomponent of the big objective, but it's the difference maker. It's the part that's not part of the day job. Okay. And if we could do that, right, if we could increase the amount of business, you know, per client, if we could decrease client churn, if there's a particular category of investor that we could improve. It's that if the title of the book is to go from 5 million to 10 million, what's the most critical chapter in the book? That's the wildly important goal. Because if your critical goal represents the sum totality of all the work you do, then you haven't narrowed your focus, right? So don't just look at your high-level goal and think done with discipline one. No, 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 no. Focus on the wildly important means. Yeah, look at your highest-level goal, but then choose what's the critical chapter. Where am I going to put disproportionate energy? Right, That's what strategy is about. There could be 10 chapters to the big number. Where do I put disproportionate energy? And it's got to have a starting line. It's got to have a finish line. It's got to have a deadline. It can't be conceptual. It has to be in the form of a target. That's discipline one.
1: Hey, all. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but Chris actually, the next handful of minutes, walks through a diagram. He prepared specifically for applying four disciplines of execution to financial services, going through all the details, lead measures, lag measures, exactly how they apply to setting goals and motivating your team. If you want to check that out, simply go down to the show notes, click the link right at the top. That will take you to the YouTube video version of this conversation. And by the way, if you want to catch our episodes out there, it's as easy as subscribing in the lower right-hand corner. Catch you on YouTube. Okay. So maybe we've got some case studies or stories. And by we, I mean you, Chris. So that's the big goal looking at maybe some service firms you've worked with, or maybe some financial firms that you've worked with, what might be a subset of, I want to double my revenue, or I want to double my assets gathered. That might be an example of a wildly important goal. Great. Can I grab the screen? For sure. Yeah. Okay. Let me just show some. And, in, and real quick, for those of you listening in on audio, we're Chris and I are on video right now. So if you want to check this yes, out, go to the you. show notes. There's a YouTube video where you can actually see what's on Chris's screen here.
2: And and Brad, what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop two levels. Okay. So maybe the highest level goal or objective of the team is to increase total assets from 5 million to 10 million. Okay. And you could say, okay, we're going to increase what we've termed pervasive clients from 34% to 46% as an example. OK, so what we're saying is, is we've created a category within our client base of a particular t- type of client. Um, I like to call this the Bachman Turner Overdrive principle. You remember that song that I'm going to I'm going to date some of you right now, you know, any love is good love. And so I took what I could get is the line that we're playing off of. And, you know, any revenue is not right. Good revenue, like some revenues better than other. And so, you know, this particular uh, advisory group is saying, look, there's a type of client called pervasive clients. And these are the ones that have multiple lines with us. These are the ones that have insurance and have some, right. And there's a particular category of client we want to grow. Cool. A lot of times in our firm, we'll call that like an avatar client. That's the ideal
0: client. Is that the same? Okay,
2: cool. Yep. Yep. So there's a category. You want to move that particular category. And you really have to almost do a business case on this because you say, Look, if I'm going to put disproportionate energy against that objective, by the way, the person that taught me that term, his name's Tim Tisopoulos, and he's now the president of Chick-fil-A. And you want to look at an organization that executes on a phenomenal level. A a freestanding Chick-fil-A will do five times the amount of revenue as a McDonald's across the street, working six days a
1: week instead of seven. So real quick, because that's a fun story. Um, and I think most people have a Chick-fil-A in their market. That, so the right. other day I'm going through the drive-thru and there's a guy on an iPad standing right next to the board, right? And I'm like, oh, is your board broken? Oh, no, sir. It's just, we found it's a little bit faster and more convenient if I, because we've got, this is kind of rush hour. So if we come out here and take the orders for you, so, it, so you get your food quicker. Yeah, and, he, and, and if he took your credit card too. Yes, yeah, literally paid right there. Yep. Yep. And then they—that that is a company right there that gets it. They
2: they handed you the right and and the, and the kids they hire, right. They'll, they'll tap into this is they'll tap into half a dozen families, honor students, Mm -hmm. and then they'll network off of half a dozen families. And those are the kids that they'll hire. And it's like a whole different, right. It's, it's every, every aspect of that operation. But so, so 15 years ago, Tim Disopolis was working with us on some of this. And he, he kept using, and I've, I've reminded Tim of this, kept using this term, where do we need to place disproportionate energy? And if you don't do that, you don't have a strategy. Mm. Strategy is about saying, look, all right, there's 12 chapters and I know they're all important, but what am, what's my bet? What am I going to double down on? That's really what just
1: sharing. I mean, if this isn't proprietary information, like everybody knows Chick-fil-A story. What, what did they decide? This is where our disproportionate energy goes to, you know, it was 15 years ago,
2: but you know, it's the things that you would expect, you know, for one operation, it might be, um, speed of checkout or drive-through time. I remember we were out there working with them when they came out with the shakes and those ridiculously great tasting shakes. And, and they, you know, for the next, it wasn't anything amazing. It was just the next thing. They had such a great whirlwind that they could just pick the next battle. So the, the mindset is really whirlwind plus one where you get yourself in trouble is where you try and go whirlwind plus three. Yeah. Right. And, and differentiate in your mind, this is the stuff can, if you don't get anything else from the podcast, Get very clear in your mind on uh, this is the stuff that has to be maintained. Maybe that eats up 80%. The disproportionate energy may only be 20%. And what we're saying is the disciplines, the four disciplines of execution are not what you use to run your operation. Okay. That's the 80%. That's the part you already know. The disciplines of execution are what you do, how you focus the 20%. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so discipline one, like you can see in this model, is chunking down, okay, pervasive clients. And to do that, now if if on a team level, I've got to increase qualified hires. Like there's a type of team member that's gonna work really well with that group. And you know what? I know that pervasive clients come out of a particular category type. There are certain type of, they have certain economic demographic markers. And we're gonna categorize that. And they have a certain, I can't remember what this one meant, but there's certain, and and the construct you're looking at right now is what we call fewest battles to win the war. This goes back to the, the, uh, you probably heard the book, The Art of War. It's like, you know, it's a thousand years old, right? And it's this idea that if the big goal, and it's not even the biggest goal, but the first wildly important goal is pervasive clients. There's probably some battles to winning that war. And if those can be divvied up among different parts of the team, you've now created even more focus. So that, that's discipline one right now. And we call those
1: LAG lag measures. So, so real quick, and I want to make sure I'm understanding this. So every successful financial services firm, they've got whirlwinds that they don't ever turn off, right? It's the paperwork every day, the new clients coming in, all of that, the client experience. But what I heard you just say is, okay, take 80% of the team's effort, right. maintain that. Now the 20% Let's put it towards this one wildly important goal that's going to take us to the next level, the five mil to 10 mil or the 500,000 of revenue to a million. And it actually reminds me a lot of Dan Sullivan from strategic coach, like some of his coaching where you're working in your business. Yes. And then you have a day where you work on your business, same concept where you can kind yeah, of frame it Very, that way.
2: very similar. Yes. He's okay. getting at the, he's scratching at the very same itch because okay. in your business will consume you. And you will feel like you can't be any busier than you already are. But as Peter Drucker said, work is like, it's like a gas. It will fill the available space you give it. If you push it from 100 to 80, that life support, you'll find that there is 20 that you can put towards strategic energy. Mm-hmm. And some of, your, some of the listeners, they do this automatically. They, they do it and they don't even know they're doing it. They just know to do it. And, and what we're doing is we're giving you language that says, look, everything we're showing you, right now lives in that magic 20%. Strategic focus is not about what you do with the 80. You don't get a choice on the 80. You got to maintain that stuff. It's what you do with the discretionary energy. That that the deliberate energy you know used against discretionary time and and that and and some of your listeners are thinking I don't have 20%. Folks, you do. If you had a, if you were sitting in a boat and the boat had a hole in it, you could convince yourself that you have no time to do anything but bale water. But the truth is, some point, you got to put down the bucket and you got to work on the hole. And yeah, it's going to be a little bit nerve-wracking when you see the boat filling up with water while you're working on the hole. But that's working on the business. is working on the hole, not just bailing the water. I wasn't sure that analogy was going to stand nope. up right I there. was
1: <laughs> almost about ready to just tell you your analogy game's on point but I was like no I'm not going to derail you so but yes yeah. keep
2: going right right but that that's psychologically that's the closest thing we can come to to what yep. the distress associated with putting the bucket down but that's where strategic execution happens Chick-fil-A didn't get to be Chick-fil-A by accident it's painful to put energy against the next thing speed of checkout you saw it Brad yep. they just did they just went a little further into the woods than everybody else they did a little bit more work. I'm so glad you brought up that example. And they figured out, no, 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 no. We got iPads. We're going to test this out. They probably tested eight different things. You didn't see how much work went into because it never looks that brilliant on the back end. When you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, anybody could have done that. Well, anybody didn't.
1: They did. Yeah. The, the combo with them, which when you went back to you describing how they recruit their team, the caliber of worker they have at a fast food restaurant versus every other fast food restaurant is Shocking. astronomical. Yeah.
2: You think, well, look at everybody else. We can't, you know, these are the people we're stuck with. This is what you have to get. Yeah. You, know, you got to understand this. And I've heard all the excuses. So, okay, now I got to go one more. So I'm at a, I'm at a Chick-fil-A c- kickoff with 1500 new owner operators. And actually you might look, I mean, advisors Excel might look at this model. It's a very interesting relationship. Okay between the owner-operators and the mother company. It's interesting dynamics. But the old man, Truett Cathy, is still alive, right? The founder, the creator of the Chick-fil-A sandwich. And he comes out, and he's like grandpa. And they all just go crazy. They love this guy. And his story is just, well, you can't, like, there's Truett Cathy, and then there's Santa Claus, right? He's like the most adored human being. So he comes out, he's got this big bucket and this big bag, this big plastic bag of stuffed cows. And he's chucking the cows out, and everybody's having a great time. And I don't see this coming. And then he gets really serious with them. And he says, there's one thing I want you to remember if you forget everything else. He said, don't let anyone else hire your people. I was talking to the owner operators and it might be, you know, there might be a staff of 30, 40, 50 people, you know, between all the shifts and everything at one of the bigger freestanding Chick-fil-As. And he says, it gets really serious. And he says, don't let anyone interview your next hire except you. You don't delegate that to anyone else. You bring someone into our organization. You are bringing them into our family. And it was just like, it was like this lightning. Like, I can't remember anything else that happened for that day and a half. But True and Kathy getting really serious about that part of the operation and who you bring. Like, like he got that. And so it's not an accident, right? It's not an accident that everything about that experience
1: is different. Because people are different. And now, so this is where these podcasts start to. I know, I'm
0: so you know, sorry.
1: This is, this is really important stuff because this book is based on execution. And Michael Hyatt, I, I've stolen this quote from him. If you don't have a big enough dream, if it doesn't require a team. Mm-hmm. And I think the tough thing with financial advisors is they all start out as a team of one and it's them. And then they're a victim of their own success because they do so well. They're like, Now I've got this whirlwind surrounding me. And here's the biggest thing that I run into all the time because we help hire team members for our clients. We help train them. right? And it's this back to don't let anybody else hire your people and you should be interviewing them. There's this thought process and this methodology in financial services of hiring is an expense versus an investment into your business. And when you look through the lens of expense, it's how cheaply can I do this and as you know, Chris, because you've seen all kinds of teams in your work, if you go cheap and least expensive, that's what you get. People without jobs. If you go investment and how can I hire the rock stars, guess what? They're the most expensive because they already have a job and they're a rock star somewhere else. But it's those are time. the people that actually I execute. Know. Right? I know. So, all right, I'll get off my soapbox. Well, I want to hold that note for just one second. We'll
2: wrap up the other disciplines, but just this idea that you just struck right there. If I recognize, like it's the top box on this little visual right here, qualified new hires. Let's suppose that's not just a concept. Let's suppose that there's been some real definitional rigor that's been put behind that, right? And we're going to increase the number or the percentage, right? This was obviously made for a somewhat larger team. We're using percentages. But if I'm going to, at three qualified hires in the next four months, that is going to take deliberate, right? Disproportionate energy. And so that won't happen automatically and it won't happen without discipline. And so this is, right, what have we got to do to cr- to create energy around that thing so that the whirlwind doesn't pull me back? Because as you said, if I'm an individual advisor and I've grown the business, the whirlwind increased right along with that. And it will increase to the point where it will, it will keep me from being able to do anything strategic, and that in there is the rub. And I think as you go from a one man operation, where if I just get back on the phone, I can produce so much. To know, you know what we're gonna we're gonna push that to eighty, and we're gonna move. So that's the for, that we've spent a lot of time talking about discipline. One, well, focus well, on. Let's wildlife.
1: hit one thing. If you don't do it right, because I've seen I've seen this unfortunately a lot where your success will eat you alive. You'll continue to give more and more and more, and you'll go from 40 hours a week to 50 to 60 to 80. I've seen people like this badge of honor 100 hours a week. And I'm like, is that why you built this business? So you don't know your wife or kids and you never get to have dinner with them? Is that success? Because that's not how I define success, right? And so to me, this is like not just philosophy. This is is like real important stuff that matters if you want your business to actually serve you versus the other way around. And so that's why I'm so passionate about this conversation. And, and all we're doing right now, they, they say that the beginning of
2: wisdom is the definition of terms. We, we need a way to think about these dynamics. Otherwise, when the wildly important goal in the whirlwinds start to blur together, you lose you lose traction. Yeah. And so getting very deliberate with Exactly. What's the starting line? What's the finish line? What's the deadline? When we say new hires, what does that or qualified new hire? What does that mean? When we say category, you know, a, you know, category A clients, what do we mean by that? Like, it's very difficult to execute on a concept. Mm-hmm. You've got to move it. You look at people that have had significant achievements; they've moved out of a concept and into a target. So that's discipline one: okay. getting the target right. You want to keep
0: let's keep so we have this, Yeah. All
2: right. So we call the targets whether it's for the whole team or or a subcomponent, we call those lag measures. Those are results measures. Discipline two says act on the lead measures. Now, these are things that you can do. They're either small results or they're actual activities that can be tracked. They're much closer to home. They have to be tracked or they're not real. So if the lag measure was weight loss, the lead measures are not diet and exercise. The lead measures are cutting my calorie input from X number of calories a day to Y calories per day or running three miles five times a week. There's specific targets that get you to the outcome. And there's some very interesting logic that comes. This is the heart of the thing. This is where most people struggle with this methodology. And I'm going to tell you why. And we didn't understand this even when we wrote the book, Brad. People get to the second discipline. I'm gonna tell you what the key to the second discipline is, because this is, if the first discipline's focused, the second discipline is leverage. And I'll give you a visual in just a second. But the second discipline is what can I act on? In other words, it's influenceable that will be predictive of the outcome. So it's just like a lever. Like if I pull the lever, the rock will move. And the lever's not so heavy that I can't, I can pull that lever. And when I pull the lever, the rock moves like that piece is so critical. But the problem is when people do the first discipline, they go too big and they go 5 million to 10 million in assets. That's my lag measure. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they try and put a lever under a boulder and it doesn't work. And they go, wow, discipline two is hard. No, 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 no. Discipline two is not hard. You didn't do discipline one correctly. You didn't get the rock down to a movable size like increasing category A clients, that that now we got something I can act against. Like now we got something I can put a lever against, right? That notion of getting the target small enough that they're movable, but they're still strategic to the outcome. There's some real work in discipline one on the lag measure. And then the lead measure, what is something I can measure that will move the outcome? And that's something we don't have time on this but that's something we go, we give lots of examples on people. People need to see examples before they can start experimenting. And a lot of times you do have to experiment with what's going to be the lead measure. But let me tell you, when you get this right, this is everything. This is a winnable game.
0: Yeah.
1: So let's go into the lever example. Because I mean, I know you actually, I love the fact how much you prepared for this. And I really appreciate it because you made this a specific example to financial advisors. So So look, look at this.
2: Let's say the blue box is the lag measure and the green box is the lead measure.
1: And I'm gonna show you some bad so examples. For those of you on audio, so yeah, sorry. New, uh, account, uh, yeah. new accounts is the boulder, first appointments is the lever. That's right. And so I'm taking, I'm gonna do two bad examples. Okay. So let's say that we say
2: new accounts, you know, could be new clients. First appointments is the lever. Well, if you're a very experienced advisor and you know how to get first appointments, this is a good lever. Mm-hmm. But if you burn through your network <laughs> and you're thinking, oh yeah, great lever. I I wish, you know, I wish I had 18-inch biceps and I could pull that lever. Mm-hmm. But that lever is just too heavy to pull. I mean, it sounds good when you say it. What's your lag measure? New accounts. What's your lead measure? First
1: appointments. That is a lead measure. That moves that. Which, real quick on that, Chris, by the way, that right there which is your bad example, is a better example than 99% of advisors with my experience actually use. Because I know. Just throw the lag up and say, hey, I'm going from five to 10. Let's do it, team. I know. That's really, I'm really glad you said that, right? So this, the, right, this is a, a good testament. I'm really glad you said that.
2: Even if you don't get these disciplines exactly right, you get big traction. Yeah. You don't dial them in perfectly. But yeah, I'm gonna show this as a bad example because for some advisors, For some advisors that can actually pull that lever, it's a great example. But if I'm an advisor that's burned through my network, it sounded good after a couple weeks I'm back in the whirlwind. Mm -hmm. Because when the strategic bet doesn't seem viable or seems futile, I'll just start to default back to urgency. I won't even know I'm doing it. That's where people run. When your people lose belief and hope in your strategy, you're, you're not losing to defiance. You're not losing to belligerent, stupid, or lazy. You're losing to busy. They'll just go. They won't even know what's happening. They just get sucked back in the day
0: job.
2: All right. So the problem with first appointments to new accounts is for a lot of advisors, that's not a winnable game. I mean, it sounds good. It just, you know, it's my friend in Mississippi says that dog doesn't hunt.
1: Right. I use that in Kansas too.
2: You use that in Kansas too. That dog won't hunt. I mean, it sounds good. <laughs> right? She's going to look at dogs. she will hunt. All right. So here, let's do another one. So let's play with the laws of physics, right? And let's get a longer lever. So here's another bad example. New accounts, let's predict, let's get a lead measure that will work and let's get cold calls. Let's just get that phone book and let's start, right? Let's just start talking to everybody. Let's just get cold calls. Let's do this. And you can move that lever all day long. But you might find that while it's very influenceable, it's not predictive. And you're spinning your wheels and there's nothing coming out the other side. And anybody that's done a lot of cold calling, you know, you hate to admit it, but you know, like maybe you got an account, but you're not sure you wouldn't have gotten that account anyways. And you really don't know that the cold calling is paying off. And you stop doing that after a couple of weeks, right? Because again, it's not a winnable game, right? And it works just like it does in nature. Like you put a 25 foot pole under a boulder. You can move that pole all day long. You're just bending the pole, right? You're not moving the rock. It was literally when we were dying out, drawing out these diagrams, we were like moving the falcon. We were trying to figure out the physics and we said, no, right? Who was that? Was it Copernicus? Somebody said, if you give me a lever long enough and a place to stand, I could move the world. No, no, you can't. You'll just bend your pole. So that's a bad example. So let me give you a good example. Let's change the lag measure. Maybe for this advisor, instead of going after new accounts, let's look at that thing we were trying as a lead measure a minute ago. And let's say maybe the lag measure, maybe the wildly important goal is just getting first appointments. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Maybe first appointments, that thing I thought was a lead measure, maybe that's the lag for me. And it's just, can I get first appointments? Like the rest of the operational sort of take care of itself. Maybe I put my deliberate, you know, discretionary energy against first appointments. Now, what's a lever for that? And it's amazing how when you get smaller on the rock, you recognize, oh, you know, referral leads are something I know I should be doing. I got a client base that really likes me. They know people, this is better than cold calling. I'm just going to make sure that twice a week, I'm going to get, you know, really a qualified lead and see if that lever will move that rock, right? Something I can do and it moves the needle. And this is a winnable game. And here's the point. When you get it, it won't sound like much. Like if you just looked at this you think, oh yeah, well, of course you do. Of course you do referral leads to get first appointments, right? But I'm telling you, nobody gets there. You go through all these gyrations and you try out bad models before you really dial in where's the lead and where's the lag measure. But once you get it, right, you can run that bet like that dog will hunt and it becomes a winnable game and people's energy level changes when that happens.
1: Yeah. So let's go to that because this is real world. And what I love is the example that you came up with completely on your own. We weren't going back and forth, shooting emails nope. back and forth. That's what our number one, like literally what's on the screen right now. You're kidding our, me. Our number one office that brought in 300 million organically last year, which puts them like, I don't, other than firms out there actually buying practices and absorbing no. them, I don't no. know no. anybody that's organically creating that yes. much volume per year, his team, their lead measure, or I guess lag measure in this example, right? Their lead measure to growth, right? Because first appointments is like a lead measure to total volume. Yep, that's Uh, right. That's what their team sits down and looks at every week in their meeting is how many first appointments are on the calendar versus what they should be at if we're going to hit this volume. And so- Well, let's uh, pause on that
2: for just a second, bro. As a listener, if you're listening to this, I want you to picture someone, and you've all got one, I want you to picture someone you know in your circle of friends who's lost 40 pounds deliberately, like not an operation or something weird physically. Somebody that you know that deliberately set out to lose 40 pounds. Hold that person in your mind because the principles are universal. They, first of all, they were counting. Nobody lost 40 pounds because they understood a diet or an exercise program. They had to count. They had to hold up the ugly mirror, like Brad, like your example where they go, look, I know everybody thinks first appointments is important. How many did we get last week? Oh, that is an ugly number. And here's the thing, it's the commitment to that. It's not how bad you wanna lose weight. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if losing weight's the most important thing in your life. It doesn't care. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters. Is your degree of discipline to the lever? That's what gets the results, not how much you care about the lag measure.
1: Right. The lag measure in your example is the person that just gets on the scale once a week and then is cries their eyes out because it's the same as it was the week before or sometimes worse, right? And then we start lying to ourselves. Yeah. You know, my metabolism isn't
2: like everybody's metabolism. And they do this in hospitals with patient satisfaction. We can't be in the bottom quartile. You know, I think our market's different. I think people just in this market are different.
1: Okay. So that let that one echo a bit, because one of the things I've heard over and over the last 12 years is my market's different than everyone else's. And then I pull up the database and there's somebody half a mile away. Crushing it. Crushing it. Just absolutely crushing it. It's not the market. So let's just go ahead and dispel that belief across all the financial services. It's not your market. Are we we on the same page there, uh, Chris? Yeah, and and I want to be really clear about so that people don't think we're talking about a magic pill. Right.
2: This formula, which sounds like basic common sense, right? First of all, let's go back to discipline one. Narrowing the focus. You're going to hate that, folks. Because there's seven other things you want to put energy against, and you're going to have to say no. So you want to know why nobody does these really simple things? Because they're counterintuitive. Like, if each team picks one of those three battles, if you as a leader of the team pick the top battle, the top war, there there are seven things you can't really chase outside your whirlwind. You're going to hate that. Can I I
1: throw a fun story in there? Yeah. And this might be one of those myths that was just they took a famous person and put them in this myth just. Did Albert Einstein say it? Right. Yes. So <laughs> so I heard it, I read it. It was a blog or a somewhere in the internet, Warren Buffett's pilot was having a conversation with him. Well, this one I hey, don't know. Have you heard this one before? No, 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 okay. no. So Warren Buffett, and this was, you know, years ago, but his pilot was having a conversation. He's like, Hey, i you know, I've got these big goals and some things I want to accomplish. So Warren's like, have you written them down? No, I haven't written them down. He's like, well, go write them down. And then once you write them down, bring them back to me and we'll discuss them. Mm -hmm. So he goes home, writes them down, comes back with his list of eight or 10. I forget how many were on there. And uh, so he sits down with Warren and they kind of go back and forth. He's like, okay, well, which one's the most important? And they have the conversations like this one right here circles it. Right. And he goes, okay, well, that's what you need to focus on. And then the pilot goes back and he goes, oh, it comes back. He goes, well, what do I do with the other nine? And Buffett's like, ignore them. And he's done some pretty big things in his life, obviously. But I, I think I heard that story and I was just like, that's why people that get big things done, that's how they do it. So Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are at a dinner party. This, <laughs> is,
2: you know, this sounds like this. <laughs> is this a true story or are we... Yeah, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett walk into a bar. No, yeah. they're at a dinner party with some other really cool people. And everybody, and they start the dinner off with a little game and they say everybody has to give a one word answer for what's the most important word relevant to their success. Gates and Buffett give the same one word answer focus, right? And everybody else had given different answers, but Gates and Buffett said this they're just looking at the same principle we are, right? And they moved it from being a subconscious competency to where they're competent about it. Mm. So discipline one is, and you're not going to like it, it's really narrowing the focus. Discipline two is the lever. It's the lead measure, which by the way, you never get the lever if you don't really fixate on the rock and get very clear about exactly what the rock is and what we're going to do to move the rock. This is your friend who lost 40 pounds. This is what they did.
1: Right? You look at so, Weight Watcher. So Chris, with the, with the risk of making this a three-hour epic podcast, which I'm not going to. Nope. But- or the 4th of July. It could but, be like Lord uh, of the Rings. Yes. We'll, we'll just put it up into chunks or something. So I think what I found in sales organizations, the easy part of a lead measure for salespeople, I mean, it's like, okay, well, it logically makes sense. If I have more first appointments of qualified people, I'll do more business. Like logically, everybody gets that. I think the hard part is now flip over to the upside. side. So the people oh, filling see. out the paperwork for new business, the people you know, running the marketing programs. Do you have some examples that are kind of, Hey, what lead measures for success over there might be some things that financial advisors could think about out there? So
2: I'm, I'm in Australia and I'm working with brokers for mortgage businesses and they've got sales metrics that look very similar to yours, but they know that there's a processing component. Once a person starts, right? There's an operational, there's a back of the house component. And so they had to say, all right, What's the contribution there? And they said, All right. And the, the rules are a little different in Australia. If we can get the processing component down to one week, right? There's, right, there's all of this buyer's remorse component that goes away. Mm. There's other things like what is the deliverable? It's like a battle to winning the war. What's the specific operational deliverable? And in some ways, these are easier because you, you actually have more control over these. You don't have someone else's. Free will that's getting in the way of delivering on an operational objective. Sales objectives, customer satisfaction objectives are really brutal. You have to put enormous leverage energy against those cost metrics and operational metrics respond very, very quickly. Hmm. And so, you know, the speed of checkout example that you you gave at Chick-fil-A, what's the service element, right? In a hotel, what percentage of profile items that the guest puts in their profile, do we actually deliver on? When you say you wanted foam pillows, do you actually get foam pillows? Like there is, you know, I think about my own financial advisor. There are some operational indicators when I have a request, when I want information, like there's some, it's not just relationship. There's some hard service components to this thing. And you're
0: you're bringing
1: a story from the book out because you guys did a ton of work with the Gaylord Opryland, the, the massive, massive hotel right outside of Nashville. Right. And I believe one of theirs was how quickly the, when you checked in, the bags got to the room, right? It was a big measure for them that led to client satisfaction. Was that one of them? Yeah. Matter of fact, they were at, I, I remember this story I've told, this. they were at 112 minutes.
2: Mm-hmm. it was taking people to get the bags delivered to the room they had tourist buses that were coming in big mountains of luggage were hitting the lobby the tour buses were coming in
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, they, and they they said look the battle they were trying to move was arrival experience an arrival experience was a battle to guest satisfaction but for the bell stand their wildly important goal was to move luggage delivery time from 112 minutes to 20 minutes we came back 9 months later They were at 12 minutes, right? So, I mean, they they cut a hundred minutes off of this thing. You say, well, well, how did they do that? They made it the plus one. They had a day job. They made it the plus one. What were the lead measures? Okay, we're going to walk 50% of the guests with their bags to there. We're going to identify and mark every single bag that comes through. We're going to stop playing that game. And those lead measures would change every couple of months.
1: Mm. We go after new levels. How did the how did the the lag measure of client satisfaction, how was that impacted? Okay. So that was one
2: of 75 little tiny battles mm-hmm. leading to arrival experience, problem resolution. Can I do this? Yes, food and beverage quality, right? Food and beverage quality, problem resolution, and arrival experience spawned 75 sub-battles. Those three battles moved what they called top box or perfect ratings. They had never been higher than 44% on perfect ratings. Their goal was to get to 51. Nine months later, they were at a 61. They went beyond their two sister properties at the time, the Palm and the Texan. And, and this was one of the first really large scale operations where we've seen this work. And we realized, okay, you know what? There really is something to this focus thing.
1: So that's such a good analogy because if you think about financial services, you know, somebody comes in, they have these problems. So it's almost like they're checking into a hotel. And really, like the bag is a good analogy for a financial plan, but a financial plan is not actually any good until it's like complete with the financial products that are going to sit inside of it or the asset management that's going to sit inside of it. That's like the bag showing up to the room, right? Yeah. yeah. And it becomes real for me, the client, when I see it up until that point,
2: it's just a, it's just part of your sales pitch.
1: Yes. So if I was going to take the, some of the similar concepts that worked for a massive scale hotel that hosts massive events, it's not that different from an advisor that's got all of these people on the calendar that they're building financial plans and this, this stack of bags is piling up on them, right. Or financial plans. So going back to the upside, how do I take somebody? I'm going to put myself in a new business role now in financial sure, 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 and I'm Sally, the new business person. And now I look over and there's a stack of paperwork this high, you know, like four Bible stacks high where does the motivation on the execution come in? And maybe that takes us into three, I don't know. But how do you take someone that's now kind of being like, okay, well, we've done it this way for five years. Now you're putting these new things on me. Where do you get the motivation factor to get them great to execute on that? Yeah, it's a great question. All right.
2: And, it, and we've done this wrong so many times in so many ways for 17 years. That's why I have a little bit of confidence about what I'm about to tell you. There are many things that that person... That you're about to try and engage has no say over when it comes to the operation when it comes to the procedures that we use when it comes to all kinds of stuff those are decisions that leaders make that this person doesn't have and we are not advocating rule by democracy but when it comes to these kind of strategic goals you have to create involvement because you got to have commitment And if you don't have involvement, you don't have commitment. And I don't care how convinced you are that you know the right answer, boss. What you've got to do is you've got to let them play. We use a principle called veto, but don't dictate. Let them tell you what they think the target is. Like, you know, describe the problem. Give possible scenarios of what could be meaningful, right? Give them options. Like here's three, you know, I'm thinking about what we're trying to do with, with getting these financial plans to fruition. Here's three ways we could measure it. What do you think, which is the one that would make the most difference that we could actually win at? Let them pick. Then when they've picked and you're okay with it, you get to veto. You get to say, okay, I see why you said that, but here's what it's not doing for the operation. Try again. Give it back to them. Don't do it for them. Well, I'm not sure what you mean, boss. Just tell me what you want. No. (laughs) No. If they don't, they've got to put their fingerprints on it or it's not theirs. And and like I said, there's a hundred other things they don't get any say in. Give them a say here. And then when they've got the lag measure, help them brainstorm. What are all of the things that you could measure every week that would get you that? I mean, I know there's 10 steps to the process, but which are the two steps Mm -hmm. that you think it happened every week would get us this outcome? Well, boss, one of the steps is yours. Okay. Because if I don't get this back, I can't do the next part. All right, I'll own that lead measure. All right, and then when, when you if you'll get me that by, by, by day three, I can get you this by day five. All right, what we've learned is give them options, let them choose. If you just give them a blank sheet of paper, they won't track with you. Give them options, let them choose, and let them dial it in. And that's just the first step of the engagement. That creates something in their mind. There's two components. That creates something in their mind that looks like a winnable game. But if you as the leader take your eye off of it, it no longer will feel like a high stakes game. It has to feel like a winnable game and it has to feel like a high stakes game. And at no point have you heard me talk about incentives or bonus or anything else that didn't show up. You start bonusing, get ready to bonus on everything. okay? And I'm not saying you can't make it interesting or put a little cheese out there. That's not where you go. That's not what it's about. Is it a winnable game that they helped identify? And does it matter to you? Are they part of that weekly cadence? So just, I can wrap the disciplines up right here. But discipline two is picking the lead measures, right? So now we've got leads and lags. Discipline three is creating a scoreboard. It's got to go live. It's got to go from a target of a lag and a lead to an actual, all right, how's our client list looking? Okay, are we moving our lead measures? I got to be able to see it in physical form. We have apps that allow you to do that. People use physical scoreboards and the scoreboard is only as good as the weekly cadence of accountability. And so that's the meeting every week, automatically the same time every week. It's like, it's gotta be a religion. These are not the four good ideas of execution. They're the four disciplines. And in that meeting, right, not only do you bring the scoreboard back up every single week, like, like, the, like the team that you were talking about, Brad, with new appointments, but you gotta come up, every member's gotta come up with something they're gonna do to move their lead measure that week. All right, I'm going to create a a webinar for remote training. Uh, We're going to acquire a new prospect list for the Albany area. Uh, Give me something that's going to fuel, right? We talk about force against leverage. So to get to your question, are they involved in the target that's closest to them? Did they pick the lead measures? Because if they pick them, they'll tweak them, they'll work with them until
1: they work. If you pick them,
2: they'll just tell you you were wrong
1: and they don't work. Here's another company initiative that's being forced down the pipeline, basically. Yep.
2: And I'm already busy. I've already given me something else to do. It's a small thing. That's a huge thing. 80%, they don't have any say in, but when it comes to the strategic 20%, you got to let them, even if it's not what you would have picked. Mm -hmm. If you think it'll deliver, if you think it's a winnable game, just, you know, land that plane. Let it be theirs. So two big ideas behind the four disciplines. Is it a winnable game? Number one, is it a high stakes game? Right at the, at the, at the work level right? And if you know those two ideas, you'll make really good choices with disciplines one, two, three, and four. If you're thinking about winnable game, high stakes game, you can start to get at some results
1: that won't respond to anything else. Two thoughts off this. In your work, and you've now done this for a while with multiple different companies in all kinds of different industries. Once, So let's go to the, the Opryland example. Yep. You've got a bellhop. That's working at a really, really big hotel. Probably, not, I mean, I've been to a lot of nice hotels. You don't see a lot of bellhops that I would call super engaged. You know, they're like skipping to go take the bag to your room. Yeah, 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 yeah. So once you go through this and they have some say, and now you're engaging Mr. Bellhop in, hey, your job matters. And here's the end goal of how you're driving this massive initiative for the company that's going to get really big results. Do you see like a light bulb start to come on where people that thought they were just cogs in a machine, now they start to like figure out, oh, wow, I matter. Like, like how have you seen that play out in some different stories that, that you've seen? This is a really great question.
2: And I got good news and bad news on this one from our experience. If you ask them, they will play, but you won't see a pop in engagement. So what I mean by that, if you get their input on discipline one, If you ask them about what the lead measures ought to be, they'll tell you. It's like the human mind can't resist. It's like a riddle. And it's a riddle around the thing they know more about than you do, even though you're the boss, because you're in their wheelhouse now. Mm -hmm. If you make it like a riddle, you got them. I'm I'm talking union environments where they're not even technically allowed to have these conversations. We can get them. Mm -hmm. If you have them build a scoreboard, you'll be shocked at what you get out the backside. You'll get really cool. Stuff. The day job will still beat it. You'll think you got more than you got. You'll come out of the meeting, you'll have a great scoreboard. They bought in. 72 hours later, it will be like you never had the conversation. The whirlwind will come back into play and kick your butt. And you'll wonder, what the heck did you just do? 72 hours later, it's all gone. Here's where the engagement happens, a little like prime and a pump. Every week you bring them back on it. All right, let's look at it. All right, we were doing good for two weeks. We just fell. All right, let's make the commitments again. So this thing that started is kind of a cool riddle, kind of a cool game. Oh, it starts to go through this lull where you're like, oh, okay, did I do? I, okay, everybody made a commitment from last week. Let's go around. Did you get your commitment? You know, I didn't make that commitment. You made it. And they realize this is real. This is a high stakes game. So winnable game, you can sort of set up front high stakes game. You have to win it week after week after week, but it's their commitments, moving their lead measures, moving their outcomes. But the leader has to maintain the cadence and pretty soon, not by how you launched it, but how you play it. They start to get the idea yeah, there's a day job, but then there's this other really important thing and it starts to get this flywheel effect. You still don't have engagement. You got attention. The first time the lead measure starts to move the lag measure, then you have magic
0: Mm.
2: and that's winning. And I can take you, we're not the only ones that have done research on this. You go back to the 1960s, a guy by the name of Frederick Hertzberg. And we found this after we saw the engagement pop. Hey, Brad, we didn't do any of this to drive engagement. Like 17 years ago, We were the pointy end of the Franklin Covey stick. We were the business side of it. We didn't care about cross-functional collaboration. We didn't care about engagement. It was results, results, results. And then we started to see engagement as an accidental byproduct. When you go back to the 1960s, Frederick Hertzberg has this thing he calls the progress principle. And he says people will quit you over money. They will quit you over benefits package. They'll, They'll quit if they don't like the boss. They'll quit if they don't have a best friend at work. They'll quit over a whole bunch of stuff. And that's not what engages them. Engagement is not the opposite of turnover. Engagement has to do with what Hertzberg called the progress principle, which ironically is just a different way of saying: Are they winning against something that matters? Is it a winnable game? Is it a high-stakes game? We backed into this by accident, and you don't get it right away. You get it when the leads start to move the lat. But but Brad will prove it. We'll go to the team. Go to the team that's focused on new appointments. And even if they didn't have all the disciplines working, ask them when they saw the pop in engagement.
1: I'll bet you everything. It was when the needle started to move. Well, it goes back to where we started this conversation of you go home to your spouse. How'd today go? I was really busy, but it mattered. We got some stuff done today, right? Because you're seeing the end result and how what you did fed all the way through.
2: And if you're not doing this, it's only a matter of time before the drudgery kicks in. You know, why, are only, why are only 5% staying in the business? Because I give you the word. One word starts with an F, and it's okay. It's, it, the word is futility. Mm. And, and the opposite of a winnable high-stakes game is futility. I can't see the finish line. I don't know that this is for me. I don't know that my personality was really right. This wasn't really what I was ex- I'll give you all the excuses. I didn't have a winnable game.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So I want to hit one other thing that's a common, common thing I see happen on our side. And one of my favorite books of all time, Darren Hardy, The Compound Effect, with oh. basically the principle of nothing's easy. It's just consistent work over time, right? And so back to the fourth principle, accountability. Yep. We get all fired up. Here's this new thing we're doing. And then a month later, you don't do any more meetings. Or the one I see a lot is lead advisor, founder of the firm, flies out to a conference. The meeting was supposed to happen Monday, but he's not there or she's not there. Tell me how 40X should be handled when kind of CEO or lead guy or gal is not there. What, what do these meetings look like? Early on, Marriott, the Marriott Marquis was. The flagship for Marriott. It's the
2: most profitable Marriott in the whole world. Bill Marriott himself visits once a month. The general manager of the Marriott Marquis is Mike Stengel. Started started to stay on the hotel, but you started that. No, this is perfect. Matter of fact, they got on board based on what they saw at the Opryland, so the stories are related. Stengel's the general manager. This is exactly when uh, China hosted the Olympics in Beijing. Stengel and a bunch of friends go to China to go to the Olympics. We didn't find this out from Mike. and We didn't find this out from the Marriott. There was another person that was with Stengel that we knew who told us Mike was getting up at 2.30 in the morning in China to be on the week session calls at the Marquis. Don't miss the meeting. Okay. First year running the four disciplines, the Marriott Marquis had the highest revenue, profitability, guest satisfaction, and event satisfaction in the 20-year history of the Marquis. And it's not because of the four disciplines. It's because Mike Stengel sent the very clear message this is a high stakes game. You do not delegate execution. Now, you don't dictate it either, right? You pull it. But if the leader can maintain the cadence, and yeah, maybe their operation's too big, I can't be on all the calls. Maybe it's a bigger setup, but whoever owns that meeting, you don't miss. And if you're at a funeral, Someone is there in your place, but that sends a message that's so more power, so much more powerful than anything that you can say. So if you just anchor those two ideas, you'll get everything right. Do they believe it's a winnable game? And am I communicating it's a high stakes game? And, and last point on this, the high stakes thing. You don't think, we did not think that something being a high stakes game drove accountability until we started looking at sports. How much engagement is there around the preseason compared to playoffs? The only difference between preseason and playoffs is accountability. In the preseason, there is no accountability. doesn't matter. And with, with no accountability comes no engagement. And in the playoffs, people that are not even sports fans start wearing the merchandise, hmm. start following it. And what happens in the You lose, you go home. Like there's this weird sick part of our brains that we got to amp the drama up just a little bit. And so when it's a high stakes game, you get, and particularly if they participate in it, Mm
1: -hmm. but you set the cadence as the leader. Well, and let's go back to your sports analogy. I'm assuming most playoff games you've been to, there was a scoreboard up there tracking the score.
2: And it wasn't a coach's coach's scoreboard.
1: There's an analogy in the book, I think, of watching a game without a scoreboard and how it doesn't matter, right? Everybody knows the score
2: and we're used to scoreboards, but we're used to coaches scoreboards. We're used to the kind of data they hand the coach at halftime with tipped balls and, and, and assists and, and turnovers and mm-hmm. instead of down and distance score. Like, what do we show the players? So the scoreboards we're talking about here. Great point, Brad. They're player scoreboards. They're not coaches scoreboards.
1: All right. So one other thing that I struggled with very, very early, and it's still something I learn something new every day because I think this is one of the hardest things as a leader, because there's this natural resistance. I want people to like me, and anytime you say the word accountability, oh, this is great. Thank everybody gets nervous and their skin starts to crawl. So what I love about the framework, let's just as we kind of wrap here, because I want you to be able to get back to your to family. On. Good, Brad. So as we think about that the 40 X, if you can go through kind of very high level and quickly, like what does that, what is the cadence of that meeting? And then the personal commitments by each team member, but then when they don't follow through on the, the commitment, they made the week before, how does, how is that addressed in the meeting? I think I, I, think I got a way to do this. So okay. Brad, let's suppose you and I are on this meeting
2: and I'm the leader of the meeting. Perfect. And by the way, I don't always have to be the one to conduct at some point. I want to start passing the ball. I want team members. I want to create peer accountability versus boss accountability. But not at first. At first, I got to send the message. Let's say everybody gets their commitment done except you, Brad. Okay. And everybody's looking because it's embarrassing for you. I want to take the heat off of you. I've seen enough jerk bosses. I don't want to be the jerk boss. And so here's what I'm tempted to say. What I'm tempted to say to Brad right now, folks, is, hey, Brad, I know what a crazy week you had last week. And I know what happened with two of those clients. And, you know, I know what happened in the whirlwind. And it was really heroic. And you know what, Brad? I'm just glad you're at the meeting. Thank you. You know, go ahead, try for next week. What have you got for next week? And, oh, I think Chris a cool boss. Do you know what I just communicated? Low stakes game. I didn't mean to, but that came through loud and clear. Oh, we're doing this meeting again. All right. I don't know. Low stakes game. Checking the low stakes game. Checking the box. All right. So let, let let me give you a counter type. I don't have to be a jerk. Matter of fact, if you're a jerk, you'll kill it. But I can care about the person and make it a high stakes game all at the same time. So everybody misses their commitment. And I come back to Brad and I say, Brad, I say the same thing almost. I say, Brad, I know what happened to you last week. I know what you had to do to save those two accounts. But do me a favor. If you get yourself in this situation again, where you're going to miss one of your commitments, would you give me a call? Give me a couple days notice and give me a call and we'll, we'll rally. And I mean, I know it was a hard week, but we'll, we'll make sure that you can be in this meeting and have your commitment done. I think that was just as nice. But everybody got,
1: geez, this matters to Chris. Yeah. And, and the and I don't know if this was from the book or another, another version of that. I've also heard like, hey, everybody, we're a team, right? And a teammate goes down with an injury. Who's going to step up and basically help? Because guess what? If we're not executing on this, the team's not going where we want to go. And so I've heard another version where, hey, like, what can oh the God. team take off your plate those two, you know, accounts yep. we're going to lose, how could the team have stepped in and helped out, picked up some slack so you could still have executed on the one thing. Right.
2: Which you right. But if we hold on that note of there was a missed commitment yep. and we trying to help you, your skin's crawling, man. Mm-hmm. You're like, no, 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 no. This was on me. I could have done this. I got distracted. I really appreciate you guys saying this. I can, I can own this. I'll get those next week. I'll get those next done next week. And I'll give you one more. Like, no, I got it. I mean, you guys are being more than fair. This one's on me. I've heard yeah. people. I mean, it's so funny. You have people say I was up till two in the morning, but I was not going to walk into that meeting and not have that commitment done. Mm. So that's what that's what peer accountability sounds like. People, they'll they don't like disappointing their boss, but they get over it like they don't really don't. They really
1: don't want to disappoint their peers. Yeah, their peers are the people that are going to give them a hard time at the bar. after work. So you won't do it, but
2: that doesn't happen up front. That is the byproduct. That kind of really healthy, great accountability comes from a very consistent leader. And let me, last thing on this, what does this feel like culturally? We get a day job. I get a day job just like the advisor down the street has a day job. That's all the same. What's different is that in addition to the day job, we've always got this other thing. We've always got this intense little game we're playing. And sometimes it's on an operational component and sometimes it's on a new part of the market. But in addition to the grind, we've always got a game. And that doesn't happen without leadership. And you retain people. It has a much bigger impact on people's personal lives than you have any idea when they feel they're winning at work. It blew us away. We were not aware of how much the work influenced the engagement. And the quality of people's lives, giving them something they can win at. The human soul is allergic
1: to futility, and you know that. You've seen your business. It reminds me of the study. It It reminds me of the study, and I don't know exactly where it came from, but basically, happiness levels during times of war in countries actually goes up, and suicide rates go down because everybody's purpose for a common cause. Right? I've not heard that. It's very interesting. I'm not surprised though. But yeah, it's like they're, they're living through like the worst time, but they're the most engaged because they're all fighting towards a common good. So, and the other thing that this really, this book unlocked for me, I mean, if I, it helped me become a better leader because now I didn't feel like the jerk boss when I was holding people accountable. It was more like help, help me help you, right? Help me help you. So we all execute this thing together. And, and the other thing of you know, when somebody commits to something, letting them set their own deadline, assuming it's, you know, not like I'm going to get that done two years from now, but they're right. putting their own reasonable deadlines on. So when they aren't delivering on them, it really was their own thing that they set. It's like they set their own goal and then they didn't it, deliver. On you're
2: going to be shocked. They will commit to stuff you would have never given them. Most of the time you got to back them off. You got to say, hey, Hey, it's really more important that we hit what we say. I mean, I get it. That's aspirational. And that would be way cool. Yep. give me something you know you can deliver and and you know integrity in this stuff is what really matters the psycho stretch goal I, i'm not much of a fan of the yeah. shoot for the stars hit the moon sorry we found that that's not an a motivator meaningful goals the team can deliver on that make a difference they'll hit them and go buy them but integrity around that that's the, that that's tends to be
1: really more critical yeah the crazy aggressive goals that's just yeah, they might hit them for a month, but then you've got burnout factor going on and n- nobody wants that long-term. Right. So, Okay, Chris. So, man, I just, this conversation has exceeded expectations on everyone. Well, right
2: around. on. Thank you. So I, I
1: really appreciate it. Are you good to to close with a couple philosophical questions and then we'll yeah on to yeah, our, absolutely. Uh, our 4th of July uh, holiday here. All right. So. It's been pretty philosophical. We've it have been pretty We've philosophical. I don't think we've made this too dry. I think people are still listening in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to take this more on the personal side. Right. You shared a story, Stephen Covey. It's kind of cool because, in a form, he was a mentor to you. I mean, I know you—he you, was your employer, but you know, riding shotgun with him on these events, I'm sure you picked up some things along the way. You have seven children. I have three. So one of the things that I always try to to get out of successful people is there's a tug on both sides, business and family. What are some, you're, you're literally, I pulled you away for a little bit from, some, from your children and grandchildren. What's a lesson or two through the years of business that you've picked up that have helped you kind of balance those two things, work and family? I got two thoughts. It's not enough for a
2: book, but they're, they're pretty good. The first is that great leadership and great parenting have, I think, two things in common it's love and expectations. You, uh, the Wegman leadership, uh, that, that amazing grocery store chain in the Northeast Chick-fil-A, uh, Ashton furniture, there's organizations where you see, and I've gotten to know these leaders and the, the vibe that you get is, and you get it when you work for them, you don't just get it as an employee. Like the minute you start partnering with them, they treat you like this. Like Colleen Wegman is the, is the CEO. She took over for her father, Danny Wegman. And man, like she talks to you, you think you can do anything. Like they just believe in you at this weird level that raises expectations. You talk to anybody that had great parents, expectations, anybody that had a great leader expectations. And the other thing is they communicate love in really unapologetic ways. Like these people, the Wegmans, they're richer than Midas. Like they could be, they're privately owned. They're so profitable on, on Christmas Eve, they could be on a private jet to Vail. Drinking champagne, you know where they are Christmas Eve. They're in the cold in the Northeast in a van, going store to store delivering groceries. I yeah, I can't. It's hard to talk about, right? That and, and the, what are the results they get okay, back?
1: So on Christmas Eve, they're delivering groceries. Is that what you said? Presents to their oh to their employees. They go in from store to store. Wow,
2: and they drop off presents to the people that have to work on Christmas Eve. That's who these people are, and. So yeah, are there high expectations? And yeah, is there an equal amount of love? And I really like that idea. the second point is winnable game. I mean, if you have teenagers, I have a bunch of teenagers. And
1: what's, the, what's the age breakdown?
2: Just so 27 for the to nine years old. Oh, boy. And uh, yeah, we've got two married, uh, uh, two daughters that are married, and the rest are single. Um, and if you, if you have teenagers, you have drama. I've got five girls and two boys. And, the drama will always be there. There'll always be something. There's always going to be the next thing. And that's the whirlwind. That's like firefighting. I think the question you got to ask yourself as a parent might be very similar to what we've talked about. Is there something in this child's life that matters that the, where the kid feels they're winning? And it almost doesn't matter what it is. You know, for us, Sarah struggled on a whole bunch of fronts, but her artwork is unbelievable. And we've poured energy and resources And I mean, she could probably be hired as a graphic artist today as an 18-year-old without any formal training. But when, when that started to take hold, all these other elements, social elements, academic elements, other things started to fall into place. And is there somewhere in that kid's life where they feel like they're winning? So love, expectations, and just invest in somewhere where that kid can feel like, you know what? There's something that I do really well, are huge. And then as a, as a parent of a big family, and it's funny because my wife and I did with kids what we tell you not to do with goals. It was always just one more. Yeah. One more. Yeah. Yeah. But I like one-on-one time with kids, just on a side note. Mm. So even though I've got a mess of kids, and I'm, I'm out here on a, you know, with a bunch of family and, and cousins and everything else. I'm pulling one kid away every time I have to run an errand, every time I do something. I don't get anywhere with my kids in group form. So I'm a big believer in one-on-one time. So I guess there's a focus principle right there. And what I find is that we call it windshield time and 10 minutes hmm. driving stuff will start to come out that will not come out in any other setting. And I don't have to ask him. I don't have to be clever. I don't have to be tricky. It just comes out. And I think that's where the relationships get built. They get built one-on-one. That's kind of the parenting angle
1: on all this. Thank you. That's awesome. Are you familiar with a guy named Jim Shields and a book called The Family Board Meeting? Somebody had mentioned it.
2: I think I've heard that one time, but I don't know that
1: I know what the concept is. So basically, it's your one-on-one time, right? And he he basically, the family board meeting is so many times we look at our calendar and it's got all these meetings on it for business, but it has nothing for family other than maybe the family vacation we've got penciled in or whatever. And so he just did a quarterly board meeting with each of his kids, and that's that's awesome. Principle number one is one-on-one, no electronics, four hours activity of their choosing. Yes, activity of their choosing. So I was just curious because that's that models a lot of that, and that's not easy to do having seven kids. So that's a true commitment on your side. So that I took Mariah to Australia with me, and I took Sarah to Japan. So my my illustrator
2: got to go to got to go to Tokyo. And see a whole bunch of anime and all that stuff. So these are like big, but it's, but the, but the principles one-on-one. Yeah. And just for my own sake, just selfishly, if on a weekend, if I can say, I can't get them all, but on a given weekend, if I can go, okay, you know what? It's, it's Cambria and Tabitha this weekend. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, I can just, I don't know what it does. It just, it just, the guilt factor goes down. Everything goes down. I just feel like, you know what? I can give myself back to other stuff if I can check that box. There was a great man who said that um no success in life will compensate for failure in the family. Like that's what we, you know, my dad passed away a year ago and 89 years old, incredible life, beautiful passing. I mean, if, if you're gonna go out of this world, he did it right, but he was surrounded by family. That just adored him, you know. Even he had child. You know, He's like everybody else. Like he wasn't a perfect person by any stretch, yeah. but he contributed so much to the family that you realize you got a really good perspective on what mattered in that moment. And um, yeah, I want that more than the other stuff. I want that.
1: That success. That success. I mean, I I was at a conference the dad's retreat that one of my buddies started because he's like, there's all these business conferences, but there's no conference on the job that actually matters the most. That's being a dad and a husband. Right. 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 And, um, one of the guys there, a guy named Mike McCarthy that started a go abundance is, kind of his event. He said something that struck home with me. And he said, the only true legacy any of us will leave behind. Yeah, we can build amazing businesses, a lot of money in the bank account. The only true legacy that will outlive mm-hmm. us is our children mm-hmm. and how they show up in the world and how their children show up in the world after them. And I always took that to heart because that's, you know, if you're not taking the time like what you are, somebody else is doing it. They're doing a one on one with somebody else, right? And it's not you. So, you know, it's um, I, I, one of my mentors was a guy named Mike Weaver, the guy that pop
2: Weaver popcorn. Okay. Uh, I went and worked with him for a year. And Mike used to say that when it came to your profession, when it came to your career, and I have the visual, he said, it's like a glass of water. And he said, the hole you will leave is the same hole you leave when you take your finger out of a glass of water. You're not going to leave a hole. Mm. They're going to forget you fast. That's a brutal thing mm. to say about somebody's career. But he's, you know, he doesn't care if you wrote what you think is a best-selling book. If you built an industry, he used to say, and he had code for it, and he would just say, like, taking your finger out of a glass of water. And it was his way of saying, don't forget what lasts. And it's the family. That's your contribution. That's kind of a brutal metaphor, but we have a lot of fun with this stuff. We can give ourselves to it. But yeah, philosophically, Brad, those people are, are, are what's going to matter.
1: Yeah. Well, Chris, I, I almost want to leave it on that, but I've got one final question, and I'm going to let you do your thing. So Obviously you know the audience here. We've dove in, I think about every different angle we can in the time we've here together. So if you were gonna just take one principle that's led to your success to this point and just share it with a a bunch of financial advisors listening in that that could help them out, what what piece of advice or what's led to your success to this point? Ah, so funny. Okay,
2: so I got I got a son coming back from Argentina. He's been there 18 months on a service mission, 20 year old kid. And it was not, and and I'm thinking in my mind, like, what am I going to tell Ben? Like when he switches gears back into the real world and it sounds cliche, but you have just got to embrace failure. I heard a quote the other day that successful people fail way more than failures fail. And this execution methodology is really as much about failing as anything. It's, there's a great Ted talk out there on trial and error. By a guy named Tim Halford. It's my favorite TED talk. Uh, Halford's a British economist, and this is so poignant. Where success comes from. It's this great life irony, and I want Ben is such a smart kid, and people love Ben, and but Ben doesn't like failure. And when something starts to feel like failure, man, he shies away mm. before he's played it out. And you've got to just embrace it. You've got to bathe in it, and. And a lot of times it's my, it's, it's, it's the only reason that I've done that in my career, I think it's because of self-delusion, but whatever gets you into failure, man, like you've got to continue to fail. The success is in there, but it's wrapped in failure. And if, if, if Benjamin can get okay with failure, and sometimes it does look futile. And you, if you can keep pushing, if he can get okay with that, that kid is going to be amazing. That's my, that's my big one. Just like, just embrace Embrace that and be okay. Like allow yourself to be okay with it. Like we have so much, we beat ourselves up over it. And if you could just believe that, no, 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 This is part of the process. It's okay. I don't know. I don't think there's any other way.
1: Such good advice. And there's a book that changed my life as more as a parent, probably than business, but it applies to both sides. The book mindset, Carol Dweck. Has it crossed your radar yet? Yes, it has. It has. It's the John McEnroe versus the Michael Jordan. Right. Yep, yep. Yep. And it's like, that was one thing I made a mistake with my kids early on when Bron was little, he was pretty big and pretty fast and athletic. And I, I, he'd, you know, run this little kids race or something. And I'd be like, Bron, you're so fast. And the thing I took out of mindset is I'm just preparing him for failure down the road, because there's going to be a day where he's not the fastest. And as soon as he says, well, every time I run a race, I'm proving my dad wrong because my dad thinks I'm fast. He's going to stop entering races, right? And so it was all about, I love how much effort you're giving and how you're racing those other kids that are really fast. Because guess what? If they beat you, you're getting faster in the race, whether you win or not. And what you just described is that as a parent just playing out you know, 20 years down the road. So... And maybe, you know, and maybe we ought to do more of that with four disciplines,
2: Brad. Maybe we ought to be preparing people for the fact that some lead measures are not going to be influenceable and some lead measures are not going to be predictive, and some targets are not the right target. I can't tell you how many times we've heard second round of four disciplines is where it pays off. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't really, like first round, we were just figuring out what it's good for. Now we know what it's good for. Like they had to go through a round of failure.
1: We thought this was the lever. We were grabbing the wrong we the lever. Wrong
2: lever. Right. Yep say second round magic. We get a lot of that. Yeah. Chris, cool, man. I feel like I made a friend
1: open. You have an open invite to come back anytime you want, man. This has been such an likewise.
2: Anytime, anytime you want to get into this more,
1: let me know for sure. All right. Well, happy fourth, go hang with the family and uh, appreciate you. Thanks so much, Fred. All right. Thanks for checking out the latest show on to this week's featured reviews. This week's first review comes to us from Neil David, who says excellent insights into advisory practices, five stars. This is an exceptional podcast and worth a listen from the very first episode through the most recent episode. Brad Johnson does a terrific job organizing the content, inviting impactful guests and sharing insights relevant to a broad array of financial advisors. It's the top of my podcast list. Neil David, Thanks for the ultra kind review. And I love the fact you're going back to some of those early episodes to give them a listen as even though I was still figuring out exactly what I was doing, how do you actually interview a podcast guest? I didn't really know in those early days, but there were some absolute rock star guests that were kind enough to sit down with me as I stumbled through those interviews. And it's just a testament, I think, to all of you out there. You've just got to hop in, do the work, figure it out, iterate, and get uncomfortable along the way. And that's what's worked for me. So I know it can work for many of you out there. Neil David, really appreciate you listening in and don't hesitate to reach out if there's anything myself or my team can do to help you out. We're here. Uh, Just hop on the website. Let's connect there and happy to help however we can. The next review comes to us from Ashby Daniels, who says, great podcast, five stars. Love listening to Brad's podcast. I'd recommend that everyone listen to the episode with John Israel. It has changed the direction of the remainder of this year and maybe longer. Great stuff. Ashby, what's up, my man? Thanks for taking the time to listen in and leave a review. I'm especially honored when I hear a member of the Fintwit community listens to the show and finds value in what we're putting out there. And I hope you're still cranking out those thank you cards and doing big things as 2019 comes to a close. Open invite if your travels ever bring you through Kansas. I'd love to connect in person sometime rather than just trading messages out on Twitter. And for those of you out there on Twitter, make sure to give Ashby a follow. He's at Daniels, D-A-N-I-E-L-S, Ashby, A-S-H-B-Y. As he's putting out great content, he's a great resource in the advisor community. He's a young guy doing really big things. So go connect with them out there. And also, if we haven't personally connected yet, you can find me, at Brad underscore Johnson. Love to connect out there and uh, take the relationship to a deeper level. And the last featured review for the week comes to us from user Geek Soapbox, who says, a fellow advisor, five stars. Brad's podcast is one of my regular listens because it goes so far beyond the boring, quote, I built my 100 million wealth management practice, end quote, that so many other industry podcasts devolve into. Instead, anyone interested... And becoming a financial professional gets useful, tangible insight into the mindset of what makes an advisor truly elite. Look no further than recent interviews with James Clear and John Israel. These are genre-busting, mind-changing ways to rethink how you approach every day that inevitably will lead to success if you have the commitment to see it through. Kudos. Wow. Uh, What an awesome review. If I ever wake up in the morning, not in a great mood, I just need to read something like that and get my day started right. So I appreciate it. And I'm glad to hear that many of you Blueprint listeners out there find the eclectic mix of guests to be refreshing. And I find that hopefully it's setting my show apart from the others out there. There are plenty of conferences to go to if you just want to hear financial industry stuff. And one of my favorite parts of the show is keeping it fresh by bringing outside industries and thought leaders into our advisor community. There's so much to learn from others if we're just open to it. Uh, For those who haven't caught the James Clear or John Israel episodes yet, they're episodes 52 and 53. If you want to give them a listen, absolute. Both of them are rock stars in their own regards. And both of them believe I still have books available. So if you want to copy, hit us up and I'm sure we can take care of you. And for those of you who have interest in diving deeper or figuring out how you may be able to have our team help you implement many of the ideas shared on the show, My day job happens to be consulting financial advisors from all over the U.S. on how to grow their business and design a practice that serves them versus them serving it. It's actually possible to grow your business and work less. It's a model we've replicated over and over in markets all over the country. So if you'd like to apply to see if it makes sense for us to have a one-on-one conversation on how to overcome what may be getting in your way, you can do that at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash apply, A-P-P-L-Y takes about five minutes to fill out the application. So we can understand what your business looks like, what challenges you may be facing, and how myself and my team may be able to help. Taking the first step, it's as simple as going out and applying at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash apply. So that's all for this week. Thank you for listening in, and I will catch you on the next show. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. For access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from our show's guests, visit bradleyjohnson.com. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners. It really does help. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. The information and opinions contained here